You're listening to Leading and Learning. This is the place where we talk about practical leadership, theology, fitness, how to create winning habits, and so much more. My name is David Spell, and I'm a retired police officer, a pastor, a New Testament scholar, and a leadership coach. My goal on leading and learning is to help you live your best life. Thanks so much for joining us today. Welcome back to Leading and Learning. This is episode number 325, Reading Romans. Part 2. So last week we started a series looking at the letter to the Romans from Paul, and we looked at the letter of Romans through history. We looked how it had an impact in the life of uh, Augustine, uh, John Wesley, Martin Luther, and even other lesser-known individuals, how the letter of Romans had impacted people's lives. Today we want to turn our attention really and start focusing on the letter itself, We'll see how far we get. Uh, whenever we examine a text in the New Testament, uh, a letter, a gospel, whatever it is that we're studying, it's always good to, to look at three things. We want to look at the audience, we want to look at the author, and then we want to explore the text itself. Um, we've already talked a bit about the author. This is uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, this is his, some would call it his dissertation. This is the high point uh, of Paul's ministry. Uh, he was in the, the city of Corinth at the time he wrote it and uh, was preparing for a visit to the city of Rome. Now, he was planning on going of his own volition. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see it didn't quite work out like that. He ended up going as a prisoner and spent a couple of years there, but because of the way the system was set up, he was allowed to have some freedom and conducted pretty extensive ministry while he was in Rome, even as a prisoner. So um, Paul was uh, a very interesting guy. He was the guy who took the gospel and um, really took it from Palestine, uh, from Israel, and, 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 and saw the spread throughout the Roman Empire. However, he did not found the church in Rome. We're not exactly sure who did. We know Paul spent time there. We know Peter spent time there. But we're not exactly how the church, sure how the church got started. But what a fascinating thing to think about. Rome was the, the cradle of power. It was where um, really the entire empire was ruled from. And Christianity began to make an inroads in the city of Rome. Uh, Christians were, of course, persecuted from time to time, sometimes violently, sometimes put to death. Um, it was a very, very difficult time, but yet the church thrived in the city of Rome. And, and of course, the church didn't have buildings, they didn't have auditoriums, they didn't have sanctuaries, they met in people's homes. And the larger the church, the more homes they would meet in. We don't know how many of these small groups were in the city of Rome, but we can speculate the church was probably a few hundred, maybe more. Maybe less. We're, we're not sure, but we know that, that uh, the church was influential. When Paul uh, wrote the letter to the Romans at the end, he speaks of several different house churches there. Um, and so the, the, there was definitely a sizable presence in the city of Rome. But, but of course, these meetings were illegal because they weren't an authorized religion. 
And so they, there could have been persecution just for meeting together in a home. So it had to be done very secretly and um, usually under the cover of darkness. And you wonder, <clears throat> when you think about the city of Rome, if, if, if a time traveler from the 20th century or the 21st century <clears throat> excuse me, were to show up in one of these house meetings in the city of Rome in the first century and talk about the growth of Christianity and talk about, um, you know, one day... Rome is going to be covered with buildings that have crosses on their top, but it's not to signify crucifixion. It's going to signify that these are houses of worship. And I, you know, I think the, the, the Christians there would have probably thought you were crazy, but it's a, an interesting thing to think about. And so the, the church um, continued to grow and thrive in Rome. And of course, during different dispersions, when Christians were kicked out of Rome, um, if you read in uh, Acts, I believe it's 18, the Jews, which included many Christians, were, were actually expelled from the city, and they took the gospel with them as they traveled. So um, definitely a, a, a difficult time to be a Christian. It definitely required a very strong faith, but as always, the gospel is salt and light, and it's leaven um, in that dough of bread that, you know, you, you put the gospel into society, and it begins to influence into have an impact. So, so the audience, we've, like I said, we've mentioned the author, and then, of course, the text itself. Um, fascinating letter. We're going to dig into it here in just a minute. But before we do that, I wanted to let you know this episode of Leading is Learning is brought to you by my book, Reflections on the Resurrection. Reflections on the Resurrection is apologetic it's educational, and it's devotional because we look at the resurrection of Jesus. We, we deal with some of the arguments that have been made against it. Um, we try and refute those using the evidence of the Scriptures and other things. We also talk about why the resurrection is so important to our faith. When you look at the first century, this was the, the primary message. This was one of the very primary things that they preached was Jesus crucified and raised from the dead. So, by all means, check out Reflections on the Resurrection. I know you'll love it. It's a little book, about 100 pages, but uh, you know it's power-packed, and I know you'll love it. It's great for individual study as well as for group study. Well, all right, as we turn our attention to the text, um, I want to just read a couple of key verses here. And this is Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And remember, as we talked about last week, this particular passage, this idea of the righteous living by faith, really was what transformed Martin Luther's life because his life had been a life of works, of trying to earn God's approval, earn God's favor, of trying to pray enough, read the Bible enough, um, even, even punish himself enough so that God would be happy with him. And when he understood this, when he saw this, the fact that um, it was through faith and through faith alone, the righteous will live by faith, it transformed his life and really tran transformed history through the the, the Protestant Revol uh, Reformation. So, so those verses really do sum up the, the, the letter to the Romans, but um, I want to give you an outline, and, and really I think in some ways Romans is one of the, the easiest of all, all of Paul's letters to outline. 
And there's, if you want to outline it with me, there's five points. And the first one is this, it's the problem. The second point is the remedy. The third point would be the result. The fourth point would be the objection. And then the fifth point would be the application. And we'll go through each of these. In the first one, the problem, and the problem is man's sinfulness. Paul goes from Romans 1, uh, chapter 1 to chapter 3 in verse 20, talking about the sinfulness of man. And he talks about those um, that, that don't have the law and those who do have the law. Um, in Romans 1.18, it says, For the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And, you know, we talk about suppressing the truth. What a, what a day we live in today because the truth is in, um, you know, very uh, short supply because there seems to be this idea that, you know, your truth and my truth and everybody has a truth. When in reality, there's one truth, and that's the truth that comes from God. So man's sinfulness is the problem. And so in the first three chapters, Paul outlines this, this understanding of man's sinfulness. In fact, in chapter 3, um, verse 23, he says this. He says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. No one can say they have no sin. No one can say they're, they're, they're good enough. Um, now, I can compare myself to other people and make myself feel good, but the reality is we've all sinned because God compares us to the perfect standard of Jesus. So that's the problem. And then we said the second point is the remedy. The remedy. And that's justification. And justification is this. It's accepting Jesus. We said the righteous shall live by faith. It's connecting with God through faith in Jesus. Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and you know, that, that really is the gospel. We now have peace with God because we've been justified by our faith in Him. And so God has, has really brought the remedy. He's brought the antidote. Um, we, we all are tainted by the poison, by our sin, but the remedy is we can be justified by our faith in Him. And, you know, remember, we're talking about truth a minute ago, and, and, and really this is an unpopular truth to say that I have to accept Jesus to, to enter a relationship with God. Well, I'm just grateful there is an antidote. I am grateful that, that God made a way through Jesus and that through Him we have the opportunity to come back to God. So that's, that's justification. Paul even <clears throat> describes it. A little bit more in, in chapter 3 says, We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. <clears throat> We're justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So it's not our works, it's our faith in Christ. And then we mentioned uh, point number 3 of the outline, and that's the result. And the result is sanctification. We've, we've been justified, we've been made right with God, but now... God is going to work within us to conform us into the image of Christ. Sanctification is that, that process that takes place the rest of our lives on this earth. Justification happens instantly. Sanctification takes the rest of our lives. <clears throat> Paul also referred to it as having our minds re renewed, um, learning to think differently. 
Um, another language we might refer to it as developing Christian character. But we have to be sanctified. We have to be conformed into the image of Jesus. And uh, just a couple of couple of verses. Um, he talks in, in chapter 6, verse 12. He says, Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for, for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. And you know, let's face it, in some circles of Christianity, there's the idea that, hey, I've been saved, I raised my hand, I prayed a prayer, I can live however I want. But the reality is that's just not true. Sanctification is being conformed into the image of Christ. And uh, he even says this in in chapter 8. He says, um... We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those that God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So that is God's plan. That is God's design is to work Christian character within us. And it requires us cooperating with the Holy Spirit. Um, Paul says again in Romans 8, he says that... um, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So there's this idea of us working, cooperating with the Holy Spirit to change the way we live, to change our character, to develop good habits where we had bad habits, to to be conformed into the image of Jesus. <clears throat> so So that's the result. It's sanctification. And then the next point, point number four, is the objection. And the objection is this. What about Israel? What about Israel? Paul is writing to a letter that's a, excuse me, mostly a mixed church. And I say mixed in the sense of Jews and non-Jews who have accepted Jesus. Jews who have accepted Jesus and non-Jews. But what about Israel? Is Israel God's still God's chosen people. What is their role? And Paul works through Romans 9, um, 10, and 11 talking about the role of Israel. And, and it's absolutely fascinating. He says this, What shall we say then, and this is from chapter 9, The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness not by law, but by the faith. Um, the, the, the Greeks didn't have the law but yet they found righteousness through their faith in Jesus. And um, it doesn't discount the fact that Israel still plays a part in God's purposes, but he has chosen to graft in non-Jews. He says, so too, in this chapter 11, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace from the nation of Israel, for it is by grace If it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And and Paul talks through this idea that um, they're saved in the same way we are. Just because um, they belong to the nation of Israel or have Jewish blood doesn't mean that that they're, they're followers of Jesus. And Jesus said he's the only way to God. But they have that opportunity as well to follow Jesus. And so Paul goes to great links three chapters to describe what that means, this idea of following Jesus, whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew. And then in chapters 
12 till the end of the chapter, we, we deal with our last point, and that is the application. The application, and that's Christian responsibility. You know, in every one of Paul's letters, he, he, he has some doctrinal writing where he talks about, you know, theology and what we believe and, you know, really understanding what we believe and why we believe it. But then he also has practical application. And that's what we see in chapter 12 to the end of the chapter, uh, to the end of the book, is this practical breakdown of what does it mean to live like a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? In chapter 12, he talks about relationships. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And he, he, there's really this, this long passage where he talks about how we should relate to each other. In chapter 13, he talks about how we should relate to the government. Um, amazing. Um, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been ex- instituted by God. So, so we're talking about Christian responsibility, developing our Christian character. How should we live as followers of Jesus? Well, he's, he's telling us how we should live in relationship with each other, how we should live in relationship to the government. In chapters 14 and 15, he talks about not passing judgment on each other, not causing each other to stumble, but living our lives in such a way that we are um, building each other up. Um, absolutely amazing, so practical, and, and the kind of things really that we all should be uh, spending time reading regularly. In chapter 16, um, you know, this is sometimes one of those chapters we kind of skip over because it's Paul, excuse me, um, you know, calling out some friends and giving some, some greetings, but there's so much that we can, we can learn there. Um, even here, he, he talks about, um, uh, some friends. He says, and this is in chapter 16, verse three, greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks. Greet the church that's in their house. So, so obviously these were a, a couple who were pastoring a group of Christians in their house. They hosted a house church. So um, an amazing letter. Um, the depth, the, um, the insight is amazing. If you haven't spent much time in readings, reading Romans, I would say sit down, read through Romans, and then read through it again, and then maybe even read through it again because you're going to get a great overview. You're going to get some great insight. And when you read the New Testament, if you're reading a, a paper Bible, make sure you've got a pen or a highlight, highlighter where you can you know, mark things. Um, if you're reading it you know, from your iPad or your phone, that's great too. But you know, let's highlight things. Because when we go back, I love to go back and see what I highlighted. In fact, sometimes I'll even use those things as a matter of prayer when I finish that reading session and uh, you know, tur- turn those, those scriptures into prayer. So I'm going to stop there. I think that's enough. That's given us a bit of insight, a bit of overview into Romans. Um, hopefully this is helpful. Hopefully it'll give you some, you know, a little bit of a hunger to get into Romans yourself and see what kind of gold you can dig up. Well, I'd love to hear from you. Go to davidspell.com, leave me a question or a comment, 
in the comments section for today's post. While you're there, leave your email um, and that little box up at the top. Just drop your email address in so that we can stay connected. Well, friends, thanks so much, and I will see you next week on Leading and Learning.